Good morning. Morning. Our scripture lesson is taken from Romans 12, beginning with the third verse. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many from one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need of uh, and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Here ends the lesson. And a second scripture for you this morning. Hear these words now from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting with verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
Will you join me in prayer? Fall down upon us now, Holy Spirit, as we consider what it means to live a life with purpose and to serve you well. Call forth in us the gifts that you have given to us today. Help us to recognize them and use them well. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So have you heard the phrase upward mobility? Right? It refers to the, the ability for one generation to, to make their way to something better than what their parents had. It's a big part of the American dream, right? Those of us who have ancestors who immigrated in this country, uh, they came so they could build a better life for their kids and their grandchildren. In fact, if you ever talk to a first-generation immigrant, right, their parents often put a lot of pressure on them that they would take advantage of the opportunities that their parents never had. In fact, there is a great anthem for this, and it's, uh, it's part of a show that's been stuck on my DVR, so I haven't quite gotten to watch this version yet, but we're going to catch the beginning minute now on the screen. Oh, take it back one slide there, maybe. Can you click on there once, Allison? There we go. No sound? Is it muted? Is it on? Oh, man. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> but you can be moving on up, right? Moving on up to the east side. Oh, she's so great in this. Go back on YouTube later and watch it yourselves, I guess. But we have got to figure out our sound issues back there. That's a couple weeks in a row, but we'll get it. So sad as it is not to hear Jennifer Hudson sing it to you, sorry. But that idea of moving on up, do you have that sense in your life? Moving on up, right? You want to get to someplace better. But here's an infographic for you. In the 1940s, as measured by educational attainment and household income, 90% of people did better than their parents. By the time you get to the 1970s, that latter only climbs to 60%, and somewhere in the 1980s was the break-even point where half of people would do better than their parents, but half would not. And in the present generation, it's likely that less than 50% will do better than their parents, at least according to an article I read this week in Forbes magazine. That disturbs you a little bit, doesn't it? about your kids or your grandkids' path in life, about the American dream and, and what it looks like. We want everybody to be on the path to success. As a parent, right, you want your kids to, to be well-rounded, but you want them to strive for excellence. We want them to be good at academics, athletically gifted. We want them to play an instrument, probably get some volunteer hours in somewhere, all so they can get into a good school, right? Put them on that glide path to success. All so they could be moving on up. I was thinking about that. That uh, path of upward mobility. And I was struck this week 
in some writings by the late priest Henry Nouwen. Uh, Nouwen uh, was born in the Netherlands and then moved to America, uh, and he was a dear friend of the late Mr. Rogers as well. And Nouwen writes about downward mobility. Downward mobility and the path of Christ. Now, Henry Nouwen was famous in his day. He taught at Harvard, and then he taught at Yale. He wrote 39 best-selling books on spirituality. He had invitations to speak all around the world. And he found at a later point in his life that even with all the success that he'd had in his chosen field, he was dissatisfied. And he began to contemplate the, the downward mobility in following Jesus Christ. And now one went off to a place called the L'Arche Community. Uh, the first one was in France, and then they cropped up in Canada and all over the world, where people with disabilities and able-bodied people live together in intentional community. He spent a week living side by side with some people with severe mental and physical disabilities, and he said he was stunned by the experience. It changed his entire perspective on all the accomplishments in his life. And later in his life, Henry Nouwen ended up spending 10 years in one of these intentional communities. Reflecting on what it means to follow Christ, even if it is in a downward direction, towards humility and towards service. I'm going to help you update your youth lingo. Does anybody know what this one stands for? You only live once, right? YOLO. It was first put out by the rapper Drake, if you don't know your history of YOLO, right? Became a popular hashtag. Now there's even an app that connects to your Snapchat. So it's, it's really in the youth culture right now. When you're doing something big that's been on your bucket list, you hashtag it with, you only live once. Uh, sometimes that means you're doing something expensive or even irresponsible, right? That can be a bad hashtag if you find it. But on the positive side, it could be when you're taking a risk or stepping out or doing something outside of your normal routine. You only live once. So the hypothetical thought experiment that goes with YOLO is, what would you do? If you knew you only had one day left to live, right? It's a hypothetical that helps you think about things. If you've ever lived with a family member who's terminal, then it isn't hypothetical anymore. But, but if you were just thinking about if today was your last day on earth, what would you want to do with it? Do you want to go eat a bunch of junk food? Do you want to go skydiving or do something you never did before? What would you do if you had one more day? How would you want to spend it, and who would you want to be there? Well, it struck me through the comments of a friend this week about what Jesus did with his last day. He had a meal with his disciples, and he washed their feet. On the day that he knew was his last day on earth, Jesus said, I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. And remember that the servant is not greater than the master. 
That message that Jesus gave the disciples on the last day was something he'd been harping on over and over again about the life of service. And I have to imagine that Jesus was a little bit disappointed with the 12 disciples. Each time he told them about the path of suffering, this downward mobility, they would argue with each other, they would fight. They just didn't seem to get it. For example, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells the disciples he must turn toward Jerusalem. And Peter argues with him, and they get in a fight. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to die. And immediately after, the disciples argue about who will be the greatest when he's gone. And then today's reading comes from Mark chapter 10, 8, 9, 10. Jesus talks about his suffering once again, and James and John take him aside to angle for a better seat at the table. The disciples just don't seem to get it. Why would James and John be so hung up on this? Does where they sit in relationship to Jesus really matter that much? Well, if you're a kid, you've ever been stuck at the extra table at the family dinner, right? You know what that feels like, right? You you want to be at the head table. You want to be where it matters. I was watching the ESPYs this week, and I noticed a pattern that all the winners were sitting on the front row, and so when they called their names, they had a really easy path to the stairs to come up and receive their award, and I thought, hmm, that seems a little suspicious. And that got me to thinking about other awards ceremonies like the Oscars, right? And I found the actual rules for the seating chart at the Oscars. They hire a special firm to figure out where they're going to seat all the stars in that theater. And of course, the best stars get to occupy the first few rows. That's why Ellen was able to snap this selfie, which is the most shared photo on the planet, right? And anyone at the Oscars who they think is going to be a winner, right, who maybe is going to get best picture or best actor, they get to sit either down front or on the aisle, right, so that when they stand up and gracefully come out to take their award, they don't have to shuffle across to a bunch of other people. And to avoid us viewers from having a a negative experience of the Oscars, they don't seat any of the award nominees near each other. So when they put the camera on the winner, we don't have to see the losers tearing up their program and throwing it on the floor. And then here's the big one. They have specialists that study this, and they make sure that any ex-friends, ex-lovers, ex-spouses, or anybody who is feuding with one another in Hollywood currently is not seated next to each other. Can you imagine how big of a deal that job would be, right? Now, if you ever find yourself going to the Oscars and you don't like your seat, you should have your publicist lobby to get you a better one. Apparently, the place to be at the Oscars is a place called the Golden Triangle, right? Where all of the camera angles sort of cross each other. That way, no matter who they're putting the camera on, people in the Golden Triangle are most likely to be on camera at any given time. And that's where they put the Hollywood royalty. You know, think Jeff Bridges or Meryl Streep. 
People who've already won and who can just smile no matter who wins the award, right? These people, guess where they were? In the golden triangle, right? Did you know this about the Oscars too? If anybody gets up to go to the bathroom, they have people ready to come in and sit in their seat wearing fancy clothes, either tuxedos or nice dresses. Those are mostly employees of ABC uh, who, who find that they get that privilege. But they also have some rules. They have to come in and sit down and look nice for the camera. And they are not supposed to speak to any of the stars around them unless they are spoken to first. So thinking about the Oscars, can't you understand James and John just a little bit better? They were just trying to get ahead, to finally get their piece of the pie to move on up a little bit. So James and John, they called their publicist. Okay, they called their mom, right? And she came to Jesus and she lobbied for them to get the best seats that they could. For them, that was not the golden triangle, but it was the right and the left hand of Jesus himself. They wanted to pursue greatness. And who could blame them, right? Don't you want to be great, too? The author Malcolm Gladwell says that greatness is a matter of practice. In his book, The Outliers, he devised something called the 10,000-hour rule. He says that no matter what you want to be great at, as long as you practice for 10,000 hours, you can reach greatness. At the instrument you want to play, at the sport that you want to be good at, doesn't matter. Just practice, practice, practice. Of course, within that range, there are some genetic advantages that others might enjoy that you don't have. read an article about the Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps this week. They did a study of his body and found out that he produces one half of the lactic acid that most high-level athletes produce. And lactic acid is that stuff that gets in your body that makes your muscles burn, makes your lungs hurt when you're breathing hard and, and running hard. What a great advantage to have half as much of that stuff in your bloodstream when you're trying to go for an Olympic record, huh? In fact, athletes have known to be great. You just need to specialize, right? If you think of the great athletes from 50 or 100 years ago, they could be great in many, many sports, right? The, the Jim Thorpes, Right? or the Jesse Owens. They could, they could win multiple medals across many different disciplines. But today, a marathon runner has to be stick-thin with tiny little arms and tiny little legs. And a shot putter is big and tall and strong and wide. Everyone has specialized to the point where they can do one thing and one thing with excellence. But Jesus says... That's not necessarily the path to greatness. He critiques those who go after their opponents with great gusto, those who want to win and win at all costs. When you look at it, the politicians of today's world, right? there's not much room for compromise. If you win, then you are supposed to brag about your accomplishments and denigrate your opponents. 
treat them as a, the opposition. In Jesus' day, that meant you were either the conqueror or the conquered. When the Romans moved into Jewish territory, they took them over, wiped out their military, and made them begin to pay tribute back to Rome. But in Jesus' example, the greatness that he talks about comes in an entirely different way. What if greatness comes when we share our gifts with others? And what if greatness comes when we're willing to serve others? I found a very interesting article this week that was based on a study of Nobel laureates going all the way back to the beginning of the Nobel Prize in, in all the different disciplines that the Nobel Prize is given. They went back and looked at the research papers that came from each of the Nobel winners across all of that time. And they found that on average, on one out of every four papers that the Nobel laureates were involved in, they took the top billing. They took full credit as the main author of that paper, which is a big deal in scholarly circles, right? But then they looked at those Nobel runners-up, the big pool of people who almost won the Nobel Prize but didn't. And they found in that pool of people, the scholars took credit two out of every four times. Twice as often, they wanted to be the top dog of the research paper and not have any co-authors or anybody else getting any of the glory. And they talked to the Nobel laureates, and in the interviews that they did, they talked about being more worried about the quality of their work rather than who got the credit. And they talked about being more worried about helping to mentor new students and new scholars than being the one who was always on the top. Knowing your gifts and using them to serve others. That's the path to greatness that Jesus lays out for us. So I ask you this morning, of the gifts that have been given to you, what are you doing with those gifts? One of my favorite quotes comes from Frederick Buchner. He says, your vocation in life, vocation being the Latin word for calling, right? So the calling that God has on your life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. Can you understand how that might intersect for you? Where your passions, where your joy, where your favorite part of life intersects a need in the world around us. That very point is the point where God is calling you. Well, maybe you're thinking, that sounds good, Pastor Nick, but I'm kind of the earwax of the body of Christ, right? I'm not really sure what I could do for the rest of the body, where I could be called. I don't know what my gifts are. Well, in this very inelegant slide here, I just want to give you a web address. This is for an online assessment of your spiritual gifts. And it's a rather simple one. It's only uh, 20 or so questions. Probably take you five or 10 minutes to complete. 
And it'll just give you a snapshot of the types of things that might be your spiritual gift. And then after that, you can click on through and, and see uh, what that gift, how that gift is described and how it might be applied to give you a little boost uh, as you're thinking about where your gifts might be used. Now, no online assessment is really the full, thorough way to discover all your spiritual gifts, but it might be enough to just give you a nudge. Uh, so here it is, or I'm going to send out an email later so you'll have it. But the challenge is for us to lean into our gifts. Because God made you just the way you are. And you fit into this larger puzzle called the church, the body of Christ. And Jesus told us over and over that our most fulfilling and most rewarding life would be a life lived on purpose, with that purpose to be in service to others. When we discover our gifts, and then when we give them away freely, it becomes a blessing back onto us. Remember that Jesus told his disciples this over and over and over, even if they didn't seem to get it. So I want to remind you of just a few of those things now. Jesus told them, to whom much has been given, much will be required. In another setting, he told the disciples, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And in today's lesson, he said to them, whoever wishes to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God for the call upon our lives to serve one another, to live a life on purpose. Amen.